Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 48. Bill McAllister with Top Dog Direct about As Seen on TV products and product licensing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. I'm Philip Valitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked to Christopher and Sharice with C-Squared Consulting about some of the financial, legal, and HR traps of buying and selling small businesses. So make sure you check out episode 47 if you want to hear more about getting your company ready for outside investment and how to find investors. So many of you have written in and told me that you are stuck at the very beginning of the product development process. Does this sound like you? You procrastinate working on your product or business. You're waiting for the best idea to come along. You've spent months or even years reading and listening, but you haven't taken action. You have too many ideas, so you don't work on any. Your budget is too small to go to manufacture, so you don't start. Or maybe you have a busy schedule with a day job and family, and you can't find the time. Perhaps you think that you're not really good at anything. If any of these describe you, then you really want to take part in my upcoming free 14-day Just Start Challenge. Find it at theproductstartup.com slash juststart, or click on the button on the homepage. For the span of the challenge, you'll get an email from me every few days with concrete actions to take to help you take the next step. Again, it's completely free to participate. I'll also be running this challenge live, meaning everyone will be getting the same email at the same time. This way you can pop into the Facebook group and share how the process is going for you and then see how other people are taking action. But here's the catch. I will close signups for this on Wednesday, April 19th. I also don't know when I will be launching this live again because I want to make sure that I work on roadblocks for some of the more experienced listeners as well. So if you or someone you know is ready to stop listening about launching products and start creating them and you want simple advice to help you get unstuck and take that action, then you need to sign up. Go to theproductstartup.com slash just start and enter your name and email address to get started. So now on to today's episode. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Really excited to have you on the show because you've got some deep experience with QVC and HSN, and I wanted to make sure that we talk about that. Can you bring up some of your history with both companies? Well, I was um, one of the first importers of product um, to QVC um, when they first started. As a matter of fact, when when I was importing the products, they were buying 10 and 15 pieces of everything at a time, I uh, would consolidate it and come back, and then I went on the air with it. So, and I did that for the first five years of QVC. And then me and my partner, Brad Spector, started this company, um, and we moved all of our business to home shopping, and we became one of the top 10 vendors for, well, the better part of 15, 17 years. So I have deep experience with with both companies and have sold the Fifteen or 16,000 different items to the two, the two different companies and done almost almost a billion dollars in, in revenue at retail with, with the two. So 
I'm very familiar with them. I was offered a high-level job at home shopping, uh, which I turned down because <laughs> I'm making more money by selling them than I would have been by working for them. So Yeah, that's interesting you say that. When you mean by selling them, you mean by being a source of products that you offer as a distributor or as a supplier, or you have your own products that like your own product line that you're we have a we have a, a line of products under the Sobacala name. The Sobacala pillow is a buckwheat hull pillow, which we sold close to almost a million units just on home shopping network alone. We sold magnetic insoles there. I mean, I went on the air with all the products, so um, that's kind of how I I got to learn this business by not only making the products overseas, but I had to actually come up with a pitch and figure out how to sell it on the air. So that was a really an easy transition into the direct response business, the infomercial business, those commercials you see on TV. But wait, there's more. If you buy now, you get the second one absolutely free. So that's the business that we're in now. So it was a very easy transition for me. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. You mentioned the importance of having a pitch, especially for a as seen on TV audience. Can you describe the essential elements of a good pitch? Well, it, it, the pitch really has, it's really not the pitch as much as it is the product. Um, pretty much anybody can sell a good product. Um, you know, the pitch helps a little bit, but really the pitch are just selling the features and benefits of the product. If the pitch is good and the product stinks, the product's still not going to sell. Right. So the product, the product is king. Um, and then really, quite frankly, the pitch is just, just as, e as easy as saying, this is what it does. Um, these are the two or three things. It needs to be demonstrable in our business. Um, it needs to hit a certain price point, and it has to solve a problem. So if you hit those three criteria, you're going to have a very good product. When you say demonstrable, it's something that someone needs to demonstrate on TV or you have to be able to see the effect, the before and after effect that you're trying right. to sell, right? 100% accurate. That's exactly right. I remember listening to one of the other guests that we had on the show here that was selling a glass cleaner and that was really difficult for her to show on TV because it was difficult to show you know, clean versus dirty unless you go way overboard like they do on those vacuum cleaner commercials where you're just dumping a ton of stuff on the carpet. Yeah, we actually sold a glass cleaner. It's a lot easier than you think because all you need to do is take glass and dirty it up, which is easy. It's an easy thing to do and then clean it off. Um, and most cleaners actually don't clean the glass. Glass is one of the hardest things to clean. And Windex just, you know, they, they own that market. So it's, though it is an easy thing to demonstrate, it's a hard thing to sell because, you know, quite frankly, there's, the best, the best glass glass cleaner out there is Windex. Yeah, so you're competing against the brand name. Yeah. Speaking of products that might be a little bit more difficult than to show on TV, what have been some of the products that you've seen or heard of that you thought maybe this isn't something that's fit for TV? Uh, I, I, I can give you ten thousand different products. We see a lot of products here every single week, um, and ninety nine point nine percent of them don't fit that criteria. Uh, most products don't. Um, just think of anything. Furniture doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. you know, anything that really doesn't move and doesn't do anything, even though it might be a great product. Um, a refrigerator doesn't fit the criteria. I mean, the things that you would, you know, use every single day don't fit the criteria. A cell phone doesn't fit that criteria. So what really, and it's interesting, and you look at the sales of QVC and home shopping and they're down, they're down for, for really for one reason. They got away from 
the basic formula where you need to sell things that you can demonstrate on TV, and that neither one of them are doing it. Both of them are having a horrible last two years. So um, uh, if I were going to recommend anything to either one of them, I'd say go back to your the w way you started, which was new, innovative, demonstrable products that solve a problem and hit a price point. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I would think that a lot of the products that you described were something that would be relatively easy to sell on TV because people have some sort of a association with them. They have a history with a with the refrigerator, right? They understand the benefits of that. So just getting on TV to me would just sell to a different type of audience. But what you're saying is that there's some inherent benefit to you have to be able to show the product in use. And they already have a refrigerator. Ah, uh, uh, right. So, and they can buy a refrigerator at Best Buy. They can buy a refrigerator, you know, in a million other places. So it has to, in the case of Home Shopping QVC, it also has to be somewhat, you know, something that you can't get anywhere else but there. So then there's a search, uh, a sense of urgency for that consumer, which is what what, what they were both built on, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, having people come on, demonstrate products, you can't buy them anywhere else. You can only buy them there. And, so, only buy them until they sold, they're sold out. So Yeah, so you touched on one thing. You mentioned that the exclusive nature of selling on TV is something that is really important. So would you advise people that are first starting out, they've got a product that they've maybe even researched, the, they're at the manufacturing stage and they might be looking to launch it. I think the typical path is usually to build your own e-commerce type website or go, get on someone else's like Etsy or Amazon or wherever. Um and then branch out into stores. But what you're saying is that some products might be better suited for um, TV? Yeah, I mean, the products that are better suited for TV are exactly what, what I said. They're, they hit a price point, they're demonstrable, and they solve a problem. And, um, you know, that's what, you know, if you look at these two-minute commercials, which is the business I'm in now, um, the products that are on TV are not at retail yet. Um, Though we, you know, we, we, we within six months we're at retail, but the reason why it's selling on TV is because you can't buy like we have a brand new product called Fuzuki, um, and you can't buy it anywhere other than on television or you know on our website. Is that critical to getting a deal with HSN or QVC that it's exclusive? No, no. I mean that's their problem. Quite frankly, they're not doing that. They yeah. used to do that. They used to have products that you you know can only buy at, at, at home shopping QVC now. They're selling Sony televisions. Well, you, you can go on Sony.com and get the same thing for the same price. Or Amazon, even better, and you don't pay shipping and handling. Right. As people are going through the product development stage and they've, you know, they've got their idea, they've developed the design for it, what do you re recommend as a way to test that this is something that's going to help them be successful by launching their product? Like, Is there a, a way of, of finding out early on if your product is going to be a good product. What we, you know, and my team is me, Jackie, and Steve here. And what we recommend to everyone is use the internet. It's a great tool. Um, just think about it. Ten years ago, you really didn't have the internet to speak of. Now, everything in, you can imagine is on there. So do your research before you spend a penny on developing a product. Go on the internet and see if it's already out there. You know, searches, there's government websites, just trademark and patent websites that'll tell you if a product's out there. And all you have to do is put in something, describe what the product is and plug it in and it'll tell you whether or not the product's already out there. 
I can't tell you how many people have come to us with a product that's already on either on television or at retail, and they've spent a fortune getting a prototype made. It's already out there. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I have potential clients that I turned down for that same reason because they went out and patented something that has just so much competition out there, and they just patented some you know little esoteric feature on there that in my opinion, maybe just didn't have that much market. Now it's possible for them to chase it all the way down. But as you said, you, you're just spending so much money on the front end for this low likelihood of differentiating with what else is out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a really interesting example. About 10 or 15 years ago, somebody came to us and we put a product on, on home shopping. It was a very cool hair product. Um, Halfway through the third airing, and it was selling like crazy. I mean, like crazy. We sold 5,000 pieces a show. The product in the middle of the airing got pulled off because Conair saw it, and they had already had patented the product 20 years ago, and then re repatented and repatented it again. Sure. And this guy had spent three to four hundred thousand dollars in tooling and didn't even didn't even search it. So the poor guy went out of business. That's terrible. What a lot of the people that I talk to think that patenting is probably the first or second step in the process of creating their product. In my opinion, it's validating the audience first, you know, having conversations with people, seeing if people actually buy something like that. How important it is for someone to have a patent before they go out into the market? Unfortunately, it's not important at all. Right. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, the United States doesn't enforce patents like they do in other places. In China, believe it or not, which is the, probably the best place in the world to have a patent, they won't allow the, the product to leave the port if it's patented, if somebody knocked it off, for example. Um, here, they could care less. The United States could care less about patents. We have the worst legal system when it comes to patents. Uh, gentlemen, we just saw a gentleman who just got knocked off and it became the biggest product in, in the history of direct response. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I can tell you this poor guy lost $400 million. Wow. And he had six patents, and the patent office didn't enforce it. So unfortunately, patents aren't worth the paper they're written on. Until somebody, and I hope hopefully it's Donald Trump, until somebody changes the laws in the United States, the patent office doesn't do a thing. They don't enforce it. You know, the... When you bring it into the ports, they don't enforce it. I mean, there's knockoffs, Gucci, Amazon's carrying, you know, thousands and thousands of knockoffs. There's probably 10 or 15 lawsuits now because Amazon doesn't care either. I think the USPTO and other places like retailers that sell products put the onerous on the patent holder to protect their patent, right? So uh, I guess some of the places that I've worked at, they've had legal teams where all they did was scout competitor products for infringement and send them cease and desist letters. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, that's that's great. But unless you have uh, this well, this person I'm telling you who lost $400 million, he spent $18 million in legal fees and wound up settling for $4 million. Wow. So the person who knocked him off got $400 million in net profits. Gross was $800 million. So unfortunately, it's just, as you can tell in my voice, in the tone of my voice, um, I can't tell you how disappointed I am in the, the U.S. government and the legal system. It's absolutely horrendous. Over in, Euro in Europe, especially Italy, Germany, Great Britain, um, if you have somebody knocks you off, um, they have to put up a bond. They have to post a bond. And if they lose, they lose three times whatever 
monies that they had taken. So here, they, nothing happens. It, it takes two to three years to, to get to market. Most of the time, these inventors don't have the money, and they get steamrolled by either large corporations or people that have deeper pockets. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. You know, the USPTO is full of patents also that are just not applied to anything, right? They're, uh, most right. of the products that we see on the shelves don't aren't even patented products. They don't have any patents associated with them. Uh, you know, in the beginning, when I first started in school, we were taught to do patent research before you execute the design. And in practice, I was basically told by a number of companies to not even bother with that, that they deal with patents on the back end. You know, if they want to patent something on the front end, they'll obviously they'll pursue that. But regarding infringement, um, you know, because there's so much noise out there, because there's just so many patents out there, and a lot of these conglomerates are holding patent portfolios that they're using it as weapons, really, where they're preventing you know innovation from other type of companies. So they basically just asked us to just go ahead and start designing, and they'll deal with the legal side if they get approached from the legal team on someone that holds the patent. You know, not that we did anything intentionally, of course, but the the discovery process to see if you're actually infringing on something was just so burdensome that uh, we didn't bother with it. Yeah, burdensome in a lot of ways, but financially burdensome because patent attorney is the most expensive attorney out there. Yep. So it could cost anywhere from six ten thousand dollars to get a patent, and quite frankly, it's toilet paper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, on the, I think there's some, some rare technologies that if you come out with something that's really brand new, if you had, you know, cold fusion or the secret to uh, clean energy or things like that, that I would definitely pursue some patent protection. But for I most of the, agree. I would agree with that. But if you're, if you're talking about a gadget or a gizmo, don't waste the money. Just launch the market. So people ask me all the time, how do you compete against all the other players that do have those portfolios? And you don't want to get knocked off and you don't want to spend all this time and money in the beginning. We, go, we run like a bat out of hell. So as soon as we know it works, um, a lot of times I pull it off the air. I go overseas. I make two hundred fifty to 350,000 units, get it on the water, then come back and put it back on the air and sell it to all the retailers before anyone even knows what, what's, what's happening. That's mm -hmm. the only way to beat them. Yep. Be first to market. Be first to market and be fast to market and be at the lowest price at market. Because this other person I'm, told, I'm telling you about who lost $400 million, um, he was first to market. He just didn't have the right price. Yeah, I've heard of that a few times where you get a little bit greedy at the trough, so to speak, and because there's nobody else out there. So you're marketing it on value instead of you know maybe some of the other factors. And it leaves just ample opportunity for a competitor to come in and undercut you by a considerable amount, I guess. Yeah, yeah. In this, this case, it was $10.00. One was selling at 29 the other guy came in at 19 blew him out of the water, got the, got the retail shelf space, and that was the end of that game. That's one of the things that surprised me the most about going into retail products is how price-sensitive a lot of products are. Like I even on a couple of the products that I have on Amazon, a $3 price difference on a $20 product. So going from a $16.99 to $19.99 has a huge effect on my sales volume. It's 30%. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's completely, you know, it's completely, it, it depends on items, all obviously item driven, sure. uh, but certain items like cosmetics, for example, we have the very first spray on nail polish and, you know, at, we, we sold it at um, 1995, which sold great on the internet, 
But at retail, we come to find out the right price is five ninety nine. Who knew? You know. Yeah. You know, and now so now we're down to five. You got to figure out a way to make it to make money at five ninety nine, or you got to get out of the category. Yeah, bundling multiple colors together or something like that. Yeah, correct. That's and that's what we're doing. No, that's interesting. So as people go through this process, is there anything that they could do to help themselves to ensure that their product is going to be successful before they reach out to somebody? Like I said, using as you know, use the internet. It's the best tool we have. And that'll tell you what, what's out there with the price points the other people are at. Um, and I think that's for me, I mean, it's been, it's an invaluable tool for us. And um, we were constantly searching. Um, we, you know, we search Kickstarter and other people, the people that are out there, we're always looking for the next item. So, and by the way, if anyone's out there who needs any help, they can just go to our website and, you know, topdogdirect.com. And if they've got questions, just write the question right there and we get back to it within 24 hours. And what stage of the process do you get involved in? All stages. I mean, it's very rare. We have this product called Be Active, um, where, where this person brought us the product was already patented, already trademarked, already boxed, already had uh, studies done on it, um, and he already had inventory and testimonials. It's the only time that in the history, in 30 years of us being in business, that we've had somebody bring us a product already done. So most of the time, people have ideas. Um, some of them have just applied for patents, and some of them have prototypes. But we involve them in all stages of the game. One of the frequent questions I get is, how do I know who to trust? Because there's so many companies that do product development. You know, I'm in this space as well as you are. There's uh, some big names out there um, that, you know, there's famous companies that we maybe we don't mention by name that uh, you shoot them an email with your idea and for a flat rate, they'll evaluate it and come back to you with what they, you know, what they think about it. And if they choose you, they'll help you take it to market. Here's my, my take on anybody. If anybody's telling you they want you to pay them money, run, sprint, don't run, sprint away from them. The companies that are worth talking to, like ours, you know, we, we, we don't ask for money up front. Um, and we'll, we'll sign in certain cases, you know, as long as I know what the product is, we'll sign non-disclosure, non-competes. And those are the companies you want to deal with. Anyone who asks you for any money up front, it's, it's not a legitimate company. And when you say you work with them, would you take a cut of the retail or the profits, or is that just like yeah, oh. we, we take over the pro the whole project, okay, and pay the inventor royalty, okay, ninety nine point nine percent, as you know, um, of these people that come to you and me, uh, they don't have the financial where wherewithal. I mean, just to take a product to market a regular product through with TV and retail, you need about seven million dollars a month. So figure it's, it's going to be a six month process. So you need you need a little over three three and a half to four million dollars. So there's not a lot of people that have that um, because the opening orders are you know anywhere from four hundred fifty to five hundred thousand units, not including television, which could be a million dollars in some weeks. So it's an you yeah. know, it's an expensive pro process if the product's a su successful product. Yeah, I'm definitely going to defer to your experience on that. Uh, from the TV side, I tend to work with uh, lower volume products where you're coming out with a thousand units or something like that, um, or you know, five thousand units maybe. My experience is more on the low end stuff where it's probably easier and cheaper to do a, a small volume shot, but you're like you said, you don't have the as much upside. 
um, because you're not you're dealing as much volume. And the problem with problem with you with that is, in our industry, we have some not not very good people. And if you're just out there and you're on Amazon, for example, they have people in their offices, in some cases, two or three, that all they do is look through Amazon looking for the next hot product. So let's say you have, you bring in 5,000 pieces and you're on Amazon. Well, they're going to find it. They're going to knock it off whether you have a patent or don't have a patent. And then they're going to do a commercial and go to the market. So that's why in our world, you got you to go fast and you go hard. I don't know if you remember a bunch of balloons but this guy was a Kickstarter guy, and you know he he didn't go first to market. Now he did win, um, you know, a TRO just recently, which was great. But um, you know, you just have to watch because there's a lot of bad people out there, right? And looking for just looking for somebody who's got a great idea because most of these guys that are out there don't, so they have to rely on other people that are much smarter than they are. And to your point, I've seen uh, lots of patent infringement stuff on Amazon, and Amazon is starting to realize that it is a big issue. So hopefully this year they're going to take more action on it. But like you said, even with a patent, at the end of the day, if, if you've got a huge budget behind it, it's hard to compete in some of these bigger markets. Yep. It seems like a lot of the products that you have experience in are marketed to a broad range of people. Can you maybe talk a little bit about selecting the audience for your product, like how big of an audience is best suited for TV, like how focused or narrow does it need to be or how broad should it be? Well, it's a, it's a good, great question, actually. Um, we market to the female customer. Well, let's let's put it this way. We have we have a new business coming out called As Seen on the Internet. So, But for TV, we market to the over 40 market female. The Internet market, totally different. Um, it's the millennials. A lot of them don't even have TVs. <laughs> most of them don't have cable, and most of them are watching Netflix and on demand. Mm-hmm. So um, it's opened up a new world for us for the internet. But as far as TV is concerned, it's definitely over forty and female. And we it has to be a mass market item for us to to get into it. In other words, it's got to solve that 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 problem for that consumer. And it's got to, we got to be able to hit the masses for it to work in our business model. And by masses, I mean millions and millions and millions. So how can you assure that maybe that speaks to that many people? Like, do you feel like you have to sell something that's super broad that eight out of the 10 people that you know are going to respond to it positively? Or? We do. So I'll give you a perfect example of that. Tagaway is one of our products, which it sounds disgusting and it kind of is, but but skin tags is a, is a big problem. So... We use the internet once again a great tool and find out how many people in the in the United States have skin tags. Well, two out of three people over the age of forty have skin tags. Mm-hmm. So that that we we went ahead and I mean I can't tell you how many millions and millions and millions of bottles of skin tag away that we we continue to sell. So that's we we do our research and we look for a market that is a big broad market and that's a big broad market. Um, the new product for Fuzuki, which is people that have problems with their feet, well, with an overweight um, society that we live in, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of diabetes, and a lot of people with diabetes have problems with their feet. Um, and um, so we went ahead and marketed that product. It's been very successful. But it's uh, 66% of the people over the age of 40 have huge problems with their feet. 
Wow. That's the kind of market. We have a new product now that's that's coming out um, next week, actually, um, Monday, um, called the Spring Thing. And that's a product for people that have neck and back, upper back, neck and headaches. And that's two out of three people over the age of 40. So, you know, that's the market that we go for for TV. Now, the Internet, which we're relaunching, I said, on the Internet this year, will be for people from the ages of you know, 15 to the age of 30, 32. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a completely different, you know, set of, of rules and so on and so forth. And and so that'll be more the millennials who we're going after. Yeah, that's really interesting to see how the the landscape changes as different generations get older, right? And, and for a long time, the baby boomers were the ones that were driving um, a lot of the marketing and products that you saw being sold on TV. And now that the millennials have that purchasing power, I mean, it's fascinating how quickly like people switch around their, their marketing and their product selection to uh, appeal to that audience. Well, I mean, I can tell you from my, my daughter, Jackie, who's sitting right here, you know, they're 25 years old. They don't even have TV. They don't even have cable. So they've got their, you know, Wi-Fi and they've got their, laptop and Netflix. And, that, and they watch Netflix and on demand and that's it. Right. Yeah. Streaming services where it's yeah. at. So you go to them for, in a different way, but they, oh, as Jackie's sitting here using her phone as we're talking, that's all these millennials do. Not, even when they're watching their shows, Netflix, they're constantly on their phones. So yeah, it's a completely different way to market products and we're, and it's evolving. It's, you know, and those people don't shop in stores, by the way, for the most part. Right. Yeah, Amazon's going to just have massive growth in the next 10 years. My son ordered something from Amazon the other morning, and he got it that same day. <laughs> There's a new big, huge warehouse in Cranberry, New Jersey that just opened up. And it was a pair of sneakers, and it came at 7 o'clock that night. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's insane. <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. insane. <laughs> They're really pushing the boundaries on what expectations consumers should have. You know, So if you're rolling your own e-commerce solution, it's really tough to compete with some of that service. Now, on the flip side, as a being an Amazon seller, they take a monster cut. Yes, they do. And especially for products that are under $20, for example, where the fees can be you know, $7, depending on the weight of your product and dimensions and things like that. Yeah, it's insane. So you definitely pay for those eyeballs, you know, but then the conversions are there, right? You get 30% of the people that hit your page on Amazon will convert versus... If you're trying to pull people to your e-commerce store where you might be getting two or three percent conversion. Right. Correct. I mean, listen, even even right now, because people trust Amazon, it's like 35 percent of the people that see my commercial will go to Amazon before they'll go to my website. Yeah, it's crazy. And it, it, it stinks for the product creator because there it erodes your margin there, because if, it, if they bought from you, even if it was the same price, You'd at least have a shot at making a little bit more margin off of it. You're 100% right. You know, while we're talking about the costs here, you mentioned the cost of goods needing to be correct for TV. Now, usually my rule of thumb whenever I'm speaking to clients is around, you know, three to four X. So if you've got a product that costs five dollars to manufacture and that's your landed cost in country, you're aiming for a retail price to, you know, 15 to 20 dollars, depending on. You know, if you've got any suppliers involved or distributors involved, that type of thing, obviously more margin is better. But what are your thoughts on what that rough number should be as, as people are looking to, to hone in on their retail price and then find some manufacturers who can make it? Well, we need five-time markup just to break even. So, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, that's that's because of cost of TV. Um, and, and just go back 20 years. 20 years ago, there was 12 channels. Now there's a thousand channels. Um, 20 years ago, if you want to buy two minute time on Fox, it was $2,500. And, you know, Fox back then probably had 11 million people that watch them every single day. Now they have 4 million people and it's $25,000 for the same spot. So Please. economics don't make sense. So it's getting harder and harder to make money on television or even break even. So we need a five-time markup just to break even. So a $20 item, we need a $4 landed with every, all the costs to boxing, everything in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and my margins on my, my – so my product actually costs about five fifty. And I'm selling it on Amazon for twenty. I'm making about three dollars on that. That's net profit after all the expenses that's, have been. That's, paying. that's pretty good, actually. You know, going through all the costs and everything like that, it's amazing at how many people can get involved, especially if you start selling wholesale. Um, in my experience, it, p- wholesalers typically want you know maybe twenty five percent or so, or distributors uh, might want ten percent, and the retailer might even want a fifty percent cut. And so you have to work a lot of that stuff in there. Yes. Absolutely do. Um, have you noticed any other type of hidden costs that uh, typically people forget about that just might really inflate the cost, the final purchase price of a product? Well, shipping is a, is a big cost depending on on who you're selling. So, I mean, and how how much the product weighs. Packaging's a big hidden cost. You know, if you want to do a clamshell, sometimes in our case, the packaging's. Is, in the case of Tagaway, our packaging is almost as expensive as the product itself. Um, so, yeah, packaging, you've got to worry about that because it, it could be, a, especially if you get into clamshell um, packaging, it's much more expensive. But shipping has become, you know, especially back when gas was much higher, it was, you know, freight from the Orient to here was ridiculously expensive. Um, so those are the kind of things that we look at. But um, other than that, no. I mean, you know, we, we we have our costs down, and that's one thing you do have to know. If you don't know your costs up front, you, going into it, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. You uh, design with a spreadsheet in mind. We've got an IKEA nearby the house, and they put a little board up on their wall a couple years ago that said, "We design with a price tag first. And I thought that was really interesting because at the end of the day, if people won't buy your product, it doesn't matter how great it is. Right. And so you need to get a price that's pretty accurate. Yes. 100%. A while back, you talked about how you, you mainly deal with licensing type scenarios and you pay inventors a royalty. My understanding is that most royalties are between 2 and 10%, depending on some of the arrangements. Can you go into some details about what people can expect? Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to hit 10% because we make 7% at the end of the day. So we do everything based on us netting 7% just because of the nature of the market um, mm-hmm. and the people that are going to jump in. So if, if, if I'm only at 7%, no one's going to knock me off. Right. Um, so we work on very thin margins, but very high volumes. Um, and we pay between you know 3 and 5%, as a, a 5 being the highest. Yeah, and obviously it depends on costs involved and upfront fees and all sorts of other factors. Right. What have you seen to influence that value the most for people that you know feel that maybe you know they don't want to come in on the low end because they might want to strike it out on their own? How could they 
maybe convince themselves that, you know what, instead of doing this on my own, I'm going to come in and license it. What will help kind of push them over to that edge? Well, I mean, I think unless you're going to, not too many people have, as as you know, have the money to to market a product. So, and, and they think they do until they really get into it. Um, understanding, first off, most of the big retailers won't take a one item vendor because they don't want to put them out of business. Right. So if you, you come in with a single item into a Walmart, you're not going to get in. They're just not going to put you in just because they, you know, if it doesn't sell, you're, first off, you're not going to be able to give them markdown money um, and, and or take it back because it'll put, put you out of business. So uh, it's very hard in these days to be a single item vendor um, at any retailer. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, to finance it is it's a big it's a big to do and in our case we don't get paid for six months from the time we place an order in the orient on fuziki to the time we get paid from walmart it's six months so you got to be able to carry that money for six months not too many people can do that yeah especially a lot of these larger companies have terms like net 180 where you're like you said you're waiting like six months from even the point when they receive product in order to get paid yeah, exactly right. Well, I mean, think about it. You place an order. It, it's in the Orient, so it takes some 30 to 45 days to make it. Then it's another 30 to 45 days on the water. Then it's in my warehouse, and then I ship it to them. Then 30 to 45 days later, I get paid. So, you know, yep. it's, it's almost a full six months. So yep. something yep. a lot of people don't think about. Um, and even if you're making it here, you're, it's three months from the time you buy it from um, you know, manufacturing in the United States at the time you get paid. That's if you are selling it. You know, if you have a, you know, if you're in a Walmart or a Target or Bed Bath and Beyond or CVS. Yeah, which hopefully is, yeah, is your end goal is to get into retail or brick and mortar stores where you can make some of the most impact. But I still had one more question about royalties that typically inventors could receive. That's probably one of the top questions that I get on my show is I, I'm interested in licensing a product. And how do I get involved with that? Uh, do I need to, and we already talked about this a little bit, do I need to patent my invention first? And um, why would a company license my invention from me if it's not patented? Why can't they just take my idea and run with it? Or why won't some other idea look at another licensed product and, and do the same? Yeah, I'm not sure of the question. I mean, I think license, it's very hard. Listen, a licensing deal is pretty simple with us because we do a commercial and either it works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you get it back and you get it back with, and I'll even give you my, you know, the, the, the 35 or $40,000 we spent on the commercial. You can have it either it works or it doesn't work. And, and if it works, you know, in a licensing deal, you're going to start getting paid literally right away. So mm -hmm. because television, we, we hit the credit cards the day we ship it. So, um, you know, we'll be basically, we'll be paying you within 30 days of being on the air. So, um, licensing deals to me, you know, I've done it myself. Um, there's some deals here that don't make sense for us. And we actually give it to a competitor and take a, a royalty just because it doesn't work for us. Or, um, we're, we're very close friends with a, a competitor of ours and, um, we've given them items because they're, they're in the Snuggie business and, um, they invented the Snuggie and, and we had a couple of items that kind of matched what they did. So we gave it to, to them. So, you know, it depends. And I think if, if I were out there and I had a product 
and I was new to the business, I would definitely do a licensing deal because it's easy. It doesn't cost you any money. You have no money out of your pocket. Just got to make sure you pick the right, the right company. And, you know, we, we've, we've made a lot of inventors rich. Yep, absolutely. And I guess if it, if it doesn't work with you guys, they could always uh, try to do it on their own or do something a bit different, maybe make some changes to the product and come back. Right. Yep. Excellent. So do you have any uh, parting tips before we, we close up the show? We have a big pitch, speed pitch coming up on in um, the Washington area. So if anyone has any items and they'd like to show it to us, um, they can go to inventors at topdogdirect.com. Or, or if anyone's out there who wants to submit their items, um, they can submit directly to Jackie at, at topdogdirect.com. Perfect. Well, Bill, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you sharing all your experience with selling direct to TV and your you know experience with royalties and uh, licensing. And that's definitely been some of the top questions that we've had on the show recently. And so, again, thanks for uh, for sharing your knowledge with us. My pleasure. Have me back on again, please. I hope that you took away some good points about as seen on TV products and product licensing from Bill with Top Doc Direct. Here are my three takeaways. Number one. Number one, the broader the market, the faster the launch. Many products that we feature on the show have unique features that are difficult to replicate. Some also target niche markets that aren't best served by TV audiences. But if you have a relatively simple product that appeals to a broad market, nothing beats being first. Remember what happened to the fidget cube on Kickstarter. Number two, don't be greedy. Don't inflate your margin to the point that it encourages copycats to enter the market with the exact same product at a lower cost. Commodity products are difficult to differentiate. Competitors will always try to undercut you, but they should do it at the cost of features, quality, or service. Number three, patents aren't everything. It's difficult to enforce patent protection when you're just starting out. Remember that most products on the market are not patented. Even the USPTO says a majority of the patents filed sit unused. File a provisional patent application if you're unsure and let the product sales pay for the full application if you decide to go down that route. And if you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer of any page and sign up to the weekly wrap up. And now here's a 30 second ad spot from a longtime product startup listener, David, who's launched his own product. Hi, Philip. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my product found at canisterclips.com. Is your bagless vacuum giving you allergies or making you sick? Do you breathe in the cloud of dirt and dust that is released every time you empty the canister? Canister clips stick easily to the side of your bagless canister and hold a bag tightly around the opening as you let the dirt out. Now, a simple plastic grocery bag can be used like a canister diaper to catch that dust cloud. Canister Clips. Cleanly empty your bagless vacuum. Canisterclips.com Thanks, David, for submitting that clip, and good luck to you. I hope that you get some great feedback from the product startup audience. If you'd like to connect with David, along with other product creators, visit the Product Startup Workshop, our private online Facebook group. And if you want to pitch your product in the show or just leave me some feedback or questions, shoot me a voicemail at 681-321-1115. Join me next time as I speak with Juliana Garaziar with the Houston Angel Network about angel investing. So make sure to tune in next week to hear that episode. Don't forget to sign up to the 14-day Just Start Challenge at theproductstartup.com slash just start. 
to help get unstuck and take action to launch your product or business. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope that you're working on developing your products and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.